When we're talking about artistic research, if we think of art, there is always evidence of the maker, of the artist. The kind of filmmaking that I'm making here, I call artistic research because we have a very clear link and understanding of what the filmmaker is thinking. And that happens throughout the book. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Tanya Sukota, an artistic researcher, writer, filmmaker, and an associate professor in the Department of Film and Television in the Witt School of Arts. Tanya is the author of an important new book, just published by Wits University Press, called Uncovering Memory, Filming in South Africa, Germany, Poland, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Tanya has more than 20 years of experience in the academic teaching of film and television, and Uncovering Memory is her first book publication. I've been looking forward to talking to her about her book, which appeared in March 2023, because I regard it as an important advance in the application of artistic research in South Africa. In this discussion, we unpack her account of the ways that she uses the camera as a tool for research to uncover memory traces as they become accessible through architecture, sites, and locations in landscape and city spaces. A striking aspect of Tanya's approach as a researcher and practitioner is how her practice draws directly from the learnings she's derived from her problem-based teaching in the classroom with South African and European students and academic peers. Her research practice is also deeply informed by the personal experience of trauma. Both her parents' shattering experiences of trauma as children during the final years of World War II in Europe, and her own personal experience of trauma while she was undertaking this research. We examine the way that these traumatic experiences, both transgenerational and personal, motivated her turn towards autoethnography and the manner in which she's blurred the boundaries of theory and practice with modes of creative writing in the production of her book. Finally, we discuss her trajectory of the course of her research and writing from a notion of practice-based research to artistic research. Useful links to Tanya's films and book can be found in the show notes for this podcast. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. And we've had to delay this discussion because of your travels in Europe, but it's very good that we can sit down and talk together. And although you and I go a long way back, both having been involved with teaching and media at Wits University, I'd like you just to tell me what was your path that you followed that took you from filmmaking, television production, into becoming an academic teacher of the discipline? Okay, so, well, firstly, thank you very much. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. And I think many events that were happening socially, politically, historically kind of framed my career path. Being from Johannesburg, I went to Wits at a very specific moment in history, and that was just after Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And it was a very exciting time. And I think it was a very, very unique time to be at university because we were a group of people that came together from very different backgrounds. And we would negotiate 
the space. We'd need to negotiate the space before we could start working or before we could do anything together. And that was always a very vibrant space for me, understanding each other's relevance and the relevance of where we came from and how we understood the world and how we experienced the world in this new moment that was moving towards democracy. And I think that shaped a lot of what I did thereafter. If I think back, I've used that and I've translated that into my teaching. I always start with some kind of exercise or something where we negotiate the space. And it made me understand that we can only really start having proper conversations when we understand that. And in the 90s, there were many events happening that I think shaped the work that I did. You had the first Gulf War, the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, the Rwandan genocide, then 9-11, the war on terror. All of these things spoke directly to a lot of questions I had. And that kind of geared me towards where I was. And it started with the Gulf War and... For me, I was a student and we were talking about representation. We were talking about identity and political identity. And if anyone remembers that time, it was a very palatable kind of clinical representation of the events. So it was these laser type images. They were talking about smart bombs and how they were hitting targets. But on no level did we see what was happening on the ground. And that ignited a passion in me. For me, it was like the representation and the reporting of those conflicts were almost like a computer game. And I was saying, but where are the people? Where's the representation? What is happening on the ground? And if I look at the research that I've done, even as a student going into postgraduate and then into the academic world, it's always been the same question. What about the individual story? Where's the person that's on the ground that's being affected? And I think that really culminates in the book and the beginning of the book of looking at what I call the Red Room, which is the room where Truman, Churchill and Stalin decided the fate of everyone post-Second World War. So it's always about that, that we're always seeing the clinical representation and very seldom we're actually seeing what is the individual stories. And that has played a major role in terms of how I also became an academic because I was asking those questions. And initially, film was the place to ask the questions, whether it was documentary or whether it was fiction. But I could really grapple them as students. I think that's why it defined my career path in many ways. Tanya, what was your experience and involvement in the commercial industry? Yes, after I graduated, I started as a promo producer and we were doing on-air imagery. For that time, it was the SABC and Mnet. And these major events were happening and I was just so frustrated. The breakup of the former Yugoslavia was happening. And I said to my boss at the time, I can't, I'm going. And I couldn't get into Rwanda. I actually tried. And I said, I'm going to the former Yugoslavia. I'm going to find a way in and I'm going to find stories. So being in that very commercial environment, I was still plagued by all these questions that were happening, and I just took a tangential detour and stayed on that path. And that was the path that led you to working with film and media in an academic environment. Yeah, because yeah, that was the place where I could ask those questions. And documentary for me was played, because initially I was looking at documentary, and the problem with documentary is the camera itself the shape of the frame, the privilege of the filmmaker, the question of representation, and that whatever you're doing, it's always about representation. 
So then I kind of looked more, well, maybe fiction is the place that, you know, we can ask these kind of questions where we create characters who are looking at real historical social questions. But even that for me was somewhat problematic because it was still a form of representation. And I think it was also through many conversations with students over the years that it's always about who are you in the film, you know, even though you're behind the scenes, who are you in relation to the story and how does that affect the story that you're telling. And I think that's what happens in the book with the various films. I give the filmmakers a platform to talk about their relevance and the films they're making are somehow linked to the subject matter. And for me, that's where you can really start talking about the issues that you're talking about. So let's talk about the book. All the paths in this conversation are leading to it. And the book really does feel like the opportunity that you've used to draw together all of these strands of practice and questioning around the notion, the very challenging notion of representation in video. And the book for our listeners is recently published by Wits University Press. And its title is Uncovering Memory, Filming in South Africa, Germany, Poland, Bosnia, Herzegovina. And what really struck me about your approach, as you describe it in your book, is how much your own research has been informed by your pedagogical engagement with your students. And your book is positioned really in the aftermath, in the aftershock of the roads must fall, fees must fall, student protests, student unrest that in fact began at Wits University in 2015. And can you talk to us about what you learnt from teaching over that very turbulent period of unrest in South African universities and particularly at WITS? It was a very vibrant moment in terms of thinking and in terms of approaching the very space that we inhabited. And for me, that was the starting, it was the catalyst in the sense that when Roads Must Fall happened, that was happening at UCT. And I talk about it in the book where I'm coming to my master's classroom and my students are all on their phones and they're looking at what's happening at UCT. So it's a moment you cannot just, as a teacher, ignore. You have to bring it into the classroom because it's there. And we start talking about it and we start talking about the relevance of space and how students felt alienated within their own university environment. And I think that's what Roads Must Fall really encapsulated. And it encouraged me to tell my students, okay, well, we're filmmakers, take the cameras out and look for memory in space and place. Because if a statue of Rhodes could have ignited such passion, then if we look at the remnants of apartheid just in Johannesburg, we didn't have a statue at Witz, but the remnants of apartheid are still evident in terms of the segregated lines that were created geographically are still very evident. And I said to students, well, go and make the invisible visible. What you see in a place and what it ignites in you historically, socially, politically, bring that out in filmmaking. And I was very clear in, in telling them that they weren't allowed to use character because the minute you bring character in, it changes something else. The location, landscape, space or place had to be the character. And the work that came out was very inspiring for me because what it did was it showed me that these elements can become part of storytelling. And 
I chose to write a book using student work was because I found a lot of the work is quite phenomenal, the questions that are being raised. And very often as academics, we engage with the industry, we engage with feature films, we engage with not necessarily work that won't really find a platform and it won't find a viewing space, but yet is very provocative. And I wanted to empower that space and I wanted to encourage that space where we could start looking at very inspirational work that was coming out through students because once they graduate and they go into an industry, as much as they are critical thinkers, they're also shaped by the demands of what is imposed on them. And a lot of those big questions fall by the wayside and sometimes they become revolutionary and they ignite again. But I really wanted to use student work in the book. But what I also realized was that I couldn't engage with them on that level without putting it to the test myself. So that is how the book develops quite strategically. If I was asking people to engage with, and in many times it's about a, a violent traumatic memory, whether it's political, cultural, social, or historical, and I had to do it myself. But before we get there, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about this book, is how out of the engagement with different groups of students and peers leads you into your own research around memory and trauma. What sort of things did these students, these VIT students, in the aftershocks of the roads must fall, fees must fall, what sort of films did they make? How did they use the camera in your class to engage with these sedimented memories in their surroundings, in their physical surroundings? Yeah, the work was very socially conscious. It was about the world that students were facing in terms of it wasn't about just essay writing or engaging with theoretical ideas. There were big, huge issues behind the scenes that affected their work, that affected the types of films they were making. I'm seeing more and more over the last, I would say, five to seven years that students are engaging a lot with science fiction. And it's almost this apocalyptic world that they're translating their lived experience into this kind of fictionalized format of something. But there's something very real about what they're talking about that deals a lot with alienation, with navigating, with almost a lack of hope. I think in seven years I've had one film that's had a happy ending. And that's also part of critical thinking because you want your audience to engage critically with the work you're creating. But it also gives a sense of the mindset of the difficulties of students that they translate visually that aren't always directly about their lived experiences, but you see evidence of it. And these are very real concepts and emotional kind of elements that students are dealing with and translating them with. It's difficult sometimes because we're not psychologists, but you have to use your own psychological experiences of life to try and engage with that or to negotiate again the different parts or entry points of something and then meet in the middle and try and navigate the space together. I'm really interested to go back to when you were first responding in your pedagogy with your students mm. to the crisis that they were and that you were very much affected and addressed by the unrest and the questions that it raised. How did this manifest in their short films? I mean, you gave them license yeah. to go out 
make these short films, don't have characters in them, engage just with what you see in front of your camera. What kind of films did they make? There was one that comes to mind that was filmed at the piazza outside the Great Hall at Witz, which is the place of very popular protest in terms of its history, you know, the the neoclassical building. And if we go right through the history of Witz, that space has been a very volatile space. And they filmed it in the daylight. It was sunny. It is not good for any filmmaker. And they focused on the beauty of the space. But on, for example, the soundtrack, you have the sound of protest. You have the sound of police violence, of shooting, people screaming, people running, those kind of things. Other students looked at spaces and used like the sound of archival footage. So when you're creating narrative where you're trying to kind of animate something that's quite still in terms of architecture, space and place, the soundtrack becomes kind of important in terms of liberating the space and giving it the sense of character. So there were films that were done in terms of Gandhi Square, the piazza. We had the one that I speak about in the book about Rose Must Fall. And I was very rigid in terms of what they had to do. So that film is quite, and I dare to say the word in inverted commas, simple in the sense that it's not complex, but they weren't allowed to use character. They had to use three cuts, which meant it was only four shots. And at that point, I said no character through audio. So that's why I've used two specific films, that one, and then a couple of years later, I come back and I do the same exercise, but I give them more flexibility. And I say, okay, still four shots, but three cuts, but you can play with the layers of the editing. You can use a sense of character and you can play with audio more. So the two films are quite different, but provocative in different ways. So lurking silhouettes that Shabam Mehta, actually, he was in Joburg and he got someone at UCT to film it. He didn't know what the footage would be. So he wasn't aware of the images that came through. Which were really powerful, you know, that painted shadow of roads. The statue, of course, removed, but the shadow still... The shadow of roads remaining there, you know, and that was very provocative for me, but it also led me to the next part of the research, which was Germany. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And in a sense, you were taking these pedagogical approach and translating them with a very different group of young filmmakers and how different was their response to this opportunity? What happened was I was invited by Film University Babelsberg on a residency to work with filmmakers. I was invited actually twice so that both residencies appear in the book. Why I also went to Germany was multifaceted. So the first point was I see similarities in terms of Germany was segregated in terms of East and West in the 1940s, post-Second World War. South Africa is divided by the apartheid government coming into power in 1948. The Berlin Wall comes down in November 1989 and Nelson Mandela is released in 1990. I think it's very strategic politically also in terms of the Cold War coming to an end and where South Africa was in terms of the history. So I saw those similarities, but what I also saw was that when I saw that shadow of roads, I thought about what is South Africa doing about the apartheid past in terms of memory and in terms of monuments and memorials. Germany was doing something very vibrant where they were creating counter monuments, where they were talking about not only the past, but the engagement with the past over various moments in time. So one of the examples 
I don't talk about it in the book, but it gives a good context, is the Ashcroft Fountain in the city of Kassel. So Ashcroft is a Jewish man who donates a huge 13-meter fountain and builds it outside the town hall in the city of Kassel and donates it to the people, the, the, the citizens of Kassel. In the 1930s, the Nazis come into power and they destroy the fountain. And nothing's left of the fountain. So in the 80s, Germany starts moving in the, in the kind of mid-80s to late 80s. They, um, they invite artists to look at ways in which they can engage with it. So they couldn't just rebuild the fountain because then they negated what happened to the fountain. And this is where the concept of the counter-monument comes into play. So what they did was the winning exhibit was they excavated 13 meters into the ground. And while they were excavating, they built a replica of the fountain, which was on display, and the history and who Ashcroft was and what happened to the fountain was put on display. And then they inverted it. So now when you go to the Ashcroft fountain, it's below the ground, but you see the grids of the fountain and the shape of the fountain and you hear the water and you read about it. So you're engaging with the monument, but you're also engaging with the fact that it's still not, that it's been destroyed. That's also one of the reasons why I chose Germany, but it was also about my own lineage and my mother being of German descent. And there were very strong threads that I felt I couldn't ignore. I had to engage with them up until the point, you know, when I really engaged with myself. So that drew me to Berlin, and the two workshops that were made were very different. The first one was with filmmakers, so I came into the workshop. They already had ideas of spaces they wanted to work with, and they had ideas of concept and story. And then it was about creating the films. The second workshop, which is Chapter 9, I was invited back, and two weeks before I went, they said, okay, we've got... 10 participants as we'd hoped, but not one of them is a filmmaker. And also we changed it where we said smartphone filmmaking as opposed to equipment because we wanted to open it up. And it also, it, logistically, we didn't have insurance issues. Cell phone filmmaking made it easy. So I had this vibrant group of people. I had a mechanical engineer, I had a medical doctor, a curator, I had a theatre practitioner. I mean, everyone you can imagine. These people were doing a summer school? A summer school for one week. So in four days, I had to teach them how to make films. And the films, I think they're phenomenal, considering that they didn't even know on the Monday what an editing timeline was. The, some were familiar, but two of the filmmakers were unfamiliar with editing as a concept. So... It was really exciting. But again, in both those workshops, it invited them to choose a space and place. And we went on a walkabout. So we started talking about different spaces and the memory of spaces. Again, for me, it's always about making the film you want to make. So it's always about not making the films fit the parameters. Is how do we shift the parameters to suit the films that participants wanted to make? Also looking at the history of the past and what it meant to them individually and what they wanted to engage with. So all the films are spoken about in the book. I write about them as well. I analyze them and then I give the filmmakers a chance to talk about them. But they're available on YouTube and you can go and watch the films. So they vary between 45 seconds to, you know, my film, which is just under 15 minutes. So they vary also in terms of the workshop and the parameters that we were working with. But I also gave the participants, if they wanted to make a shorter film, I didn't say it had to be three minutes or whatever it was. So I gave them that leniency as well.
Did you give the same kind of restrictions that you gave your no. students in Johannesburg? No, then I left it open. Because I thought, let them play with the medium. They were figuring out the medium, literally, in those four days, because the fifth day we actually screened. So they had four days to finish the films, learn how to make the films, you know, think of scripts, and then uh, actually film it and edit it. So I wanted them to just play with the medium, because I think if they had to start thinking about how do I do this with three cuts, meaning four images, it takes you on another level. So I gave them more scope in terms of what they could do, but it was about choosing a location and a story that meant something to them and to engage with it and what they could do with it. It was very interesting on that level in terms of how they engaged with the different spaces and how they interpreted film. You can see in terms of the complexity of some of the films in relation to how they interpreted the image on different levels. I did it on YouTube. I chose YouTube specifically because what I'm aiming to do is trying to make filmmaking accessible. In the book, I break silos. So I break silos of pedagogy and practice about what it means to be in an academic environment. But also, I break the silos of academic writing and you see it in terms of the style of the writing in the book. You get theoretical ideas, but it's essentially around a story. And the story is my story. And many places it's written like the novel. So it's about also breaking the exclusivity of filmmaking. And what that second workshop in Babelsberg, he showed me was that it's very possible to actually open the doors to filmmaking rather than to rely on exclusivity. That's why I chose YouTube and not Vimeo because it's an accessible platform. So it was about opening doors rather than closing them and making this idea of filmmaking and the camera less exclusive. Even my own film, it's shot on 4K on an iPhone 10. Everyone has these devices, and apparently the computer on our little phones that we carry around with us is 10 times more powerful than the computer that was used to send men to the moon. So, I mean... Just that concept is, you know, how do you embrace this new world of technology and open doors in terms of the work that we do in universities? The other group that you worked with, I think very much on a similar approach to what you used with Babelsberg summer school mm. students, were what you call peers, mm. other academics. And from four days, these Peers were given four hours. Okay, so there's an acceleration going on there that I think Paul Virilio would have appreciated in terms of technique. And can you talk about that and what lessons came from that? Because to me, that was maybe the most problematic. Four hours, people engaging with a very fraught and intense space being Constitutional Hill and the old prison that's still very present there and having to put something together. So they were colleagues that came to a conference that I was co-convening, and the conference was entitled The Poetics and Politics of Filmmaking. So they were academics, film academics. So there again I play with the rigidity of structures, and it's an academic conference, and I choose to go to Constitution Hill because for me, the level of engagement of the counter monuments that were happening in Germany in the 80s, for me in South Africa, Constitution Hill is a counter monument. In, it forces you to engage with the space, but it doesn't only have the remnants of the past 
in the concrete, in the cracks, in the crevices. It's also about your own position in the space and your memory in relation to that space. So it was a provocative space where the evidence and brutality of the past is evident around us. For our listeners who don't have the background, what was at the heart of the Constitutional Hill project and what role did it play during apartheid and why the counter-monument? So the old fort was built in the like 1900s. It was built by the Afrikaners during the Boer War, which is also called now the South African War. But the idea was to house the British prisoners. And it was built on the outskirts of the city, facing the north, guarding almost the road to Pretoria. Then during the conflict, the British take over the prison and they ironically put specifically the Boers that they capture into the prison. So this place in terms of South Africa's history has played a fundamental crucial role over time, right from the beginning of its inception. And it was always a place of incarceration. Eventually with the apartheid government, they built a number of different jails, the woman jails, they section four. We were in section four prison. And this was the place where black male prisoners were kept. And the irony was that this is a place where it's considered all South Africans have been housed. So people of all races have been housed there, including men, women and children. So it became an identifiable place in terms of our history. Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi. You have these big leaders as well as people who were petty thieves, you know, being incarcerated there. And post-apartheid, it was decided to build the constitutional court in that space as an act of defiance of what that place symbolized. And for example, some of the holding cells, the bricks were broken down brick by brick, and it forms the backdrop of the court, and they rebuilt it within the exact point and location where such huge atrocities were committed. So for me, that's why I find it a counter-monument, because it's an act of defiance. So that is why I chose that specific place. And because we were talking already through the conference about the symbolism of space and place, it seemed relevant to go to Constitution Hill because we were talking, it's not only about the practice, but it's the locations of our practice that inform how we teach. And it was a difficult project in the sense of the time frame. It's a grain of sand or it's a drop of water in the ocean of where you can go with something like this. And because we had some delegates from overseas who weren't really familiar with the space, so we were all academics and we were all academics of filmmaking, but we came from very different places. The conference was specifically the CARA conference, which is part of Select, which is a global group of film schools. And CARA is primarily from the African region. So we had colleagues coming very specifically from Africa, from the continent. We also had some from Sweden, some from Finland, from India as well. They came within the space, not necessarily knowing about the space. So I started with a tour so that they could get a sense of the story. Now, I knew going into it that that was very rigid because it was giving a curation of the history rather than the emotional feeling. But because it was such a dynamic group, I thought, okay, rather than using this as a hindrance, maybe I can use this to my benefit in terms of figuring out how this curated narrative affects storytelling. 
let me make it part of the questions that I'm asking. So they went on a one-hour tour, and then we had a Tai Chi session, a debriefing session, and then people broke up into groups. But they worked with students to edit the films. So the colleagues and the peers had taken images while they were working through the space, and then they were working with students who were familiar with the space. They were familiar with the technology of the editing of what they were doing. But it was also, again, about playing with the hierarchies of education in terms of now it's the students who are being empowered to create stories through the academics who were giving them images and saying, help us find a story in this. So it was a very interesting um, dialogue of what was happening in the groups and what's the kind of the, the problem solving that was happening primarily in terms of the students because they were all of a sudden producing, editing, and they were directing images that were being fed to them. So they had that time to edit. So the films are very short. They're about 30 to 60 seconds. I don't think anyone got to actually 60 seconds in terms of the films. But they are also within a very confined space. But for me, what was evident in the films was the idea of the story of ghosts and how ghosts remain and how everyone who engaged with the space on some level was engaging with the ghosts. And for me, despite the problems and the challenges of that specific workshop, knowing going into it, this is going to be the hardest kind of workshop to create, I think there was a lot that came out in terms of thought, in terms of this idea of counter-monument, in terms of engaging, in terms of who you are. There's a whole section in the book where I give feedback from the different participants, where I think it really contextualizes how they were thinking in the space. And it brings it all together in terms of the moment. And ideally, I would have done it over two days if I could, where I wouldn't have done the curated tour. You know, I had to separate myself from the curation and I had to then find myself in the space where I would use the first day exploring the space, negotiating, thinking, you know, creatively, and then only going into groups in the second day to create something. But it was an interesting exercise in terms of the engagement and in terms of what was achievable and what was achieved. But for me, that part of the book, which is part two, really raises stories about how we individually engage with the history, with politics, with culture, from the very position of ourselves. The book in three parts, part one working with students, part two working with peers, and then part three working with myself, in each part it's almost coming closer to who I am, which then creates the launch pad to go on my own journey. Well, let's talk about that own journey. Mm. So did you draw lessons from the work with the students and the peers that informed your own use of the smartphone in the personal journey in the third part of the book? Actually, the research happened very quickly. So it all happened within a time that I was on sabbatical. I'd had the student films, the first film that's in the book. The second film I chose came later. There was another film in the book, but then Boitamela Malalugi's film, Johannes Comes to Town was so powerful for me, I decided to put that one in later. Yeah, also struck me as a very powerful piece of work. Yeah. Yeah, Can you just quickly describe that film? It's the same kind of exercise where it was about finding 
um, making the invisible visible. And he looks specifically at Rissick Street in Johannesburg and he films it in the present day, but overlays footage from the 1950s and talks about the memory of the space. So tries to find the exact location of the present day of the archival footage that he finds online. And he creates this kind of blend of the past and the present and uses this very kind of derogatory, almost painful voiceover of this typically British white male voice talking about Johannesburg in the 1950s, late 1950s, which is kind of very cringy in terms of how identity is created. And Boitamelo, being a young black man, is kind of engaging. And although he's not directly in the film, it's evident of how he's grappling with these ghosts in the filmmaking. So a um, very powerful piece of work and really generative in terms of asking questions and really giving a visual encounter of what I was looking at, where it's about the past, it's about the present, but it's also about the person making the film. And how does that emerge? And how do we work using filmmaking? So how do we use storytelling, visuals, audio, sound, editing? How do we use all these elements to engage on those levels? And I think on that level, it's a very powerful film in terms of how he was engaging. So apart from that, I literally go from the workshop at Con Hill. Uh, it's a couple of weeks later and I go, I go to Poland and I start my own journey. The reason for using the cell phone wasn't necessarily informed by the previous workshop. This idea of logistics, you know, you mentioned guerrilla filmmaking. I was going into places where I did not necessarily have Permits were public places, private places, places that I had no contact point and no way of actually having a contact point to engage in any way prior. So in terms of pre-production of filmmaking, this was not possible. So in terms of how do I achieve this, the idea was the cell phone because I have 4K quality, it's small because the minute you come out with a camera, you set it up on a tra tripod, your story goes in a different direction in terms of the people who are on the street or wherever they are. So that was a conscious decision more in terms of logistics. But in terms of the nature of the research that I was doing, that informed the filmmaking process rather than the previous workshop. I kind of worked almost with this idea of closing the chapter. So once I'd done the workshop, I'd kind of closed the chapter and moved on to the next one, you know, the next kind of part of the process. I finished the Con Hill, then I went to Berlin on the first workshop, came back, and then I went to Poland. So literally, I had to think through also, we're going to get to practice-based research, but each happened quite exclusively in terms of what I was doing in relation to the parameters of what I had. So as I said, I decided that I couldn't put people through this without actually putting myself through this. So I decide I'm going to become the lab rat and I'm going to go on my own journey, but I'm going to extend it a little bit. So with students, I'm talking about political, cultural and social history through location and landscape and space. And I'm doing that with the students in South Africa and Germany. And it was also about looking at how the two countries in terms of the youth were engaging with the past because it comes through in the feedback that they have very similar questions in terms of how they're looking at themselves in the present. And then I shifted a little bit at Conhill because 
the place is so traumatic in terms of visible memory. But each time, it's about looking at this concept of traumatic memory or haunting memory, because traumatic memory is quite specifically related to death, whereas haunting can be not necessarily about a moment of loss or death or something that's as finite as death. So it was looking at haunting memories almost from the outside in and understanding them without necessarily having experienced them. So the students are born into democracy. They haven't necessarily experienced apartheid. But what becomes very evident is that the haunting memory of apartheid is very evident and visible in their lives. And it was about engaging with that. There was a distinction in terms of Conhill because some of the peers had experienced apartheid on different levels, depending on the segregation. So that brought an interesting element. And then the students didn't experience apartheid. So it added an extra layer and texture. In the third part, when I bring myself into it, I decide... I'm going to look at who I am in my existence and how I got here. So it forced me to go through my parents' forced migration to South Africa from Europe. Can you just talk about that forced migration? Because I think how you've responded in your filmic research obviously is very closely related to your parents' very different routes. They traveled different routes but met in South Africa Okay, so my mother comes from pre-Second World War. She was born in a province called Schlesia, which was part of Germany, in a town called Breslau. And post-Second World War, in the Potsdam Conference, which I talk about very early in the book, because this is kind of like the starting point of that palatable understanding of conflict that I've been thinking about since the 1990s, really kind of concretizes my ideas. Stalin had taken over areas in Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine, and he wanted to forcefully remove those people out and move them into Schlesia, annex Schlesia into the new borders of Poland so that he could move into those different areas. In order to do that, the Germans had to be forced out of Schlesia and they had to go within the new borders of Germany. So this decision by the men in suits, Truman, uh, Stalin, Churchill, affected 15 million people. And it was a decision made on paper, on a map, redrawing the borders of Europe in a red room. That's kind of the starting point. And then I go to the story. So my mother was one of the 15 million people with her family who were forcefully removed. She was very young at the time. She was born in 1942. So in 1945, she's about three years old. What is interesting for me is that there are very specific moments that she remembers. And I went back into the research, is this possible? Did she create a narrative or is this possible that she really is remembering? And the science shows that people can, that early memory can be even earlier than three. She has these very specific moments that she remembers that I then go to these places. And she spoke to you about those memories? They would happen randomly. I'd be familiar, you know, with certain things that happened in this town called Breslau. And um, my grandparents were here for the first six years of my life, and then they went back to Germany. They they didn't speak that much. My grandmother, when the wall came down, you know, I remember my mother said, do you want to go and do you want to have a look? And she said, I never want to go back. So it was a different encounter. So then you have me coming And I'm trying to find a family archive. So because they were forcefully removed, 
they moved into Weissenfels, which was East Germany. They were there for a couple of years. They escaped through East Berlin to West Berlin then landed up in Hamburg and came to South Africa. So the idea of archive, there is no archive. The archive is from what they've built in South Africa. And you have me now trying to find that archive. So how can I build a new archive without having anything? What do I do? So that was my mother's journey. My father was born in Herzegovina, which was the former Yugoslavia. He was born in 1927. So he was older in the Second World War. And he remembers quite differently. And my recalling of their memories in the book, you can see the narrative, and it comes through, and I talk about that in terms of the details that my father remembers in relation to the details my mother remembers. He's about 15, 16, and he gets separated from his own family in the war. What I didn't realize was actually my journey with this book started in 1997. So post the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, this is when I decide I'm leaving the commercial film industry, and I'm off to Balkans. And I go there in 97. So Dayton was signed November 95. So it's still quite volatile. And there are certain places you need to go with like people that know their way around. And you need to go in certain areas that are still mined with UN escort. Yeah, you got that astonishing story that the escorts drive behind you. Yeah, I go there with my cousin and my father's sister, my aunt. I'm there and I'm saying, can we get there? And they're going, oh yeah, we want to go there. So they're on board with me. I go to the map and we look for the place and I say, this is the village. And the guy looks at it and they're all red flags all around this area. So he looks at me and he goes, this is a mined region. You cannot go there. And he says, but actually, if you find a car, we'll take you. But we are peacekeepers, so we don't get involved. We're completely neutral. You go first. If you hit a mine, you hit it. We're behind you. But we will follow you to go through. I mean, now when you think of it, we say, fine, no problem. But our biggest concern is we don't have a car. My family are refugees at that stage. They've been displaced and we don't have access to a vehicle. So I come back to South Africa and about eight or ten months pass. And my cousin gets hold of me and he says, listen, I've got a car now. I said, I'm coming. That was, that was August, May, I go back. And I go back to the UN and I tell them, listen, I want to go to this place. And they look at me and they go, you've been here before. <laughs> so I think no one had walked in that office since I was last there. Anyhow, we go through. And at that time I was filming, but I was just filming to record and I wanted to remember memories I had as a child in that space as I go through this mind-burnt village. And what I realized only afterwards when I wrote the book was when I was going through my mother's story, I realized I needed to involve my father's. But I realized that my journey with memory, uncovering memory, actually happened in 98 when I went with the UN into my father's village. You've now returned using a cell phone camera, drawing on the lessons of having worked with different groups of students and peers, and you're actively using that camera's capability as a memory mechanism, you describe it, to explore, to excavate the spaces that you've known through your parents' very scattered reminiscences. Is that a good description? Yes. I had a very good idea in terms of the film 
that it would be in three parts. At that moment, I wasn't sure exactly what those three parts would be. But I wanted to create almost like a reflection of what was happening in the film with what was happening in the book, although they're different parts. But it was this idea of a story in three parts. The interesting thing, I think, about the book and how I thought about the film was that I haven't written a book before but I know film and I know story. So what's interesting is that the book is written almost like a circular narrative, which is the knowledge I have from filmmaking, not necessarily from writing or academic writing. But the idea of the film was that it was going to be in three parts. And what happened was it was deeply informed by a shift in my own life in the research process. So I'm a third into the project and I'm hit by a traumatic event. And all of a sudden, this idea of writing about trauma from the outside in shifts. I won't go into a lot of detail because it comes out in the book. And I think for the readers, it comes out in a very specific way. So I don't want to ruin that for the readers. But the traumatic event happens March 2020, just as we're hitting lockdown. And all of a sudden, I am in the very center of trauma. And my world is shattered. It takes me a while to come back into the book. 2021, I come back. And my perspective is completely different. My view on life is different. I'm no longer writing about trauma from the outside in. I'm writing about trauma from the inside looking out. So this shifts, and maybe it's evident in the book that the perception somewhat shifts as I become the center of this because my understanding of the world is different. And I use these understandings and how I was processing the trauma was I needed to do it as an academic first, ironically, before I could deal with my emotions. And the one thing that I was drawn to was the theory of shattered assumptions, which is what happens when your world is shattered and when you're hit by something traumatic. And it's how do you pick up the pieces? So what I was realizing, and that's why the film is called Shattered Reflection, is that when I'm remembering the three parts. It's my great-grandparents and my grandparents in part one. Part two is my parents. Part three is me. It's about each generation looking at this idea of picking up the pieces when your world is shattered. I use different forms of documentary filmmaking. I use poetry documentary. I use the masked interview, and then I use self-reflexivity in the third part. But the emotions are written from a very specific point. So what happens is now that this research is happening through practice, okay, because my starting point is not an academic theoretical point. It's going into the place, finding relevance in space and place through through filmmaking, and then only coming back and then trying to understand what this means on a theoretical level. Also, memory studies is based in the Shoah and the Holocaust, and it's about a displaced generation because the world as Jewish people remembered it, no longer existed, and they were moved. So they moved a lot to the States, to Canada, to South Africa, to Australia. And memory studies was given birth from that very same point of dislocation. So it makes sense that Germany plays quite a fundamental role in the book in terms of the location of the theory as well. So in the different workshops... It's very much about practice-based research, which is research through practice, going in with a camera, finding what you find, and then deliberating what you found afterwards. What I'm doing is slightly different, and that is more using autoethnography. So it's using your own personal 
identity and experiences as part of that research question. So I become very fundamental and central in the whole of part three because I'm engaging with autoethnography. Some social sciences will say, like, you need to be objective and you need to be outside. I'm very much about, no, throw yourself in. Filmmaking is an emotional experience. It's personal. And we might as well embrace it. You cannot claim objectivity with a medium that isn't objective. In my engagement with practice-based research, I realized that actually there was an additional part of it, which was autoethnography, which was like going into the personal memories and encounters of my parents, but trying to uncover those memories by going to those spaces. So I was remembering their memories in the spaces while I was visiting them. But then that happened quite sporadically. It wasn't intended. So what happened was in the beginning of the book, in the first building where my mother was born in Poland and I arrived there, that happened instantaneously. I went there to look at the building and to see what I could find. And then all of a sudden, my head was in 1945. So that transition was not intended. It happened spontaneously in the space. And that's what generated how we remember and how we can use the camera, audio, sound to make those things in our head invisible. Because I realized at that moment that it's not about me looking at the building. The building was looking at me. And it was about it housed the memories. So the film embraces this. And it uses this on many levels, and part three specifically uses this. I hinted it, you know, as a thread at different moments throughout the book, that this is where we're going. But then I come to this understanding that there is a slight differentiation between practice-based research and artistic research, which are sometimes intertwined in academia. And for me, they're very specific and they're slightly different. And I don't mean artistic research in terms of the romantic sense of the word. When we're talking about artistic research, if we think of art, there is always evidence of the maker, of the artist. If we think of the San Koi paintings in the Drakensberg, every brushstroke tells us, shows us evidence of the person who created it. When we look at a painting, the same thing happens. The kind of filmmaking that I'm making here I call artistic research because we have a very clear link and understanding of what the filmmaker's thinking. And that happens throughout the book where each of the filmmakers talk about the films. So it's not about just going onto YouTube and viewing the films and making your own interpretation. You can view the films and then you will hear what the filmmaker's intention, emotional experience and ideas were in terms of the film. So we're not only engaging with the artwork or the film, we're engaging with it with a very clear understanding of the artist or the creator. And for me, that's the difference between practice-based and artistic research. I found that a very useful distinction. So just to clarify, for you, artistic research is where the subjectivity of the artist researcher is inseparable from the work and to some degree the meaning of the work. Absolutely. It's about understanding not just the edits and the nature of the story. It's about how the filmmaker is directing and quite openly conversing with you about those decisions. So for me, it's about the subjectivity as opposed to just viewing film. And... I think your book, together with the film Shattered Reflections, really does demonstrate 
this kind of approach very successfully and is also a very powerful piece of autoethnography in that you engage with the histories of family trauma and, of course, your own. So I strongly recommend listeners to seek out the book Uncovering Memory, filming in South Africa, Germany, Poland, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. And Tanya, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself Krista Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, the South African artistic researcher, writer, academic and filmmaker, Professor Tanya Sokota. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself, with technical production by Elna Schutz. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosevear and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>